Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So there was this moment when I was talking to M. Night Shyamalan, and this is one of the greatest directors of all time. I thought, are we in a fight? You're going to hear that moment decide for yourself. And also, M. Night Shyamalan will talk about a Knock at the Cabin, which is his new strangely biblical movie that's coming up. Plus, one of the hardest things about doing creative work is getting feedback on it, right? You have people who say they hate feedback, some people who say they like feedback. I find a, a lot of people lie about liking feedback, like, you know, I thrive on it. I, I really need it. Uh, Hannah Epstein is a, an artist and sort of a brilliant thinker from Nova Scotia who has created created, check this out, an artificial intelligence art critic. She'll be here to tell you all about it. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. For a guy who has made some dark, twisted films like The Sixth Sense and Signs and The Visit, when you actually start talking to M. Night Shyamalan, can I tell you? Lovely dude. Lovely guy. Warm, friendly, thoughtful about the films he's made. I mean, there's a lot to be thoughtful about. His new movie, Knock at the Cabin, is this biblical film about the apocalypse where you start wondering while you're watching it whether the world is even worth saving. Like not what you'd expect from a major studio film, but this is a guy who has always followed his own vision. This guy has always charted his own course, even when critics, even when studios have really doubted him. And we talk about that. But we start out by talking about that, uh, that duality. M. Night Shyamalan, the terrifying filmmaker, and M. Night Shyamalan, the uh, great guy. Here's our conversation. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Good. I had a laugh with you before we got going. And whenever I watch an interview with you, and I'm sure you get this a lot, I am always amazed that someone who can terrify me the way that you have, or like not even terrify me, unsettle me the way that you have can be such a, like a jovial, lovely fella. The question I have, do you have to go to like a dark place to, to do these films? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I feel comfortable going to darker places um, because, I'm, you know, I kind of ex- excise those demons when I'm writing or making a movie. And then I'm really kind of a, a silly, silly kind of, you know, fun, fun loving guy, like, you know, just someone to hang out and have a drink with. And <laughs> Hold on. I would like to believe, but yeah. I do have, I do have a, I do have a streak that's like, you know, like if, if you're playing sports with me and you elbow me or something, you know, uh, that side of me comes out and I'm going to, you know, that, that, that other side comes out. And so I do have that color. But you're, you're saying that like, you're, you're, like you said, you're a jocular, lovely, nice guy. You can have a pint with everything's going to be all right. But you said there's like a darker side of you that you get to excise through making films. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, um, I'm, I guess I'm, and I'm, you know what, I think the two things are probably linked by their being mischievous. You know, that I, I, you know, I'll laugh with you if we were having a drink, but 
I get a little kick out of scaring people or making them uncomfortable. Um, so, um, you know, playing with them, you know, and so playing games with them and, you know, uh, being, uh, making them feel uh, not okay for a second makes me giggle, you know, or inappropriate humor or darkness. Uh, um, so maybe that's kind of a nice bridge to that other side of me that, that does that for a living that, um, provokes i guess is the better word sure but it's it's mischievous it's not sadistic like i, I when, no. like you know there are there are filmmakers and there are films especially in this genre that it's like you feel like the filmmaker is saying what can i put you through i always feel yeah. like i'm not going to i'm going to be terrified and i'm going to be unsettled but i'm not going to get oh, that no thing, I, you know? I i'm very sensitive to uh, what i call torture porn so you know we don't want any of that that feeling of um, I'm, I'm using the fact that you're a human being against you by saying, you know, here's an, a horrific event and I'm going to make you slowly watch it like that. That's not storytelling. That's kind of just manipulation in the, in the worst sense. And when I, when some people come up to me, like, you know, couples will come up or a group of people come up and go, Oh, I'm, I'm your biggest fan. I've seen all your movies and there'll be another person there and I'll go, how about you? And, they go, and they'll go, or, you know, uh, they'll go, Oh, I don't like those type of movies. And I'm like, I'm like, girl, there's just that's just one type of movie. I don't what I don't know what you're thinking of, like you torture or something like that, but that's not what this is. And I go, I pro- I said, watch one movie uh uh and that you think of mine that you think it's that and please then come back and you know, talk to your friend because that's not why she's coming up to me right now or your or your husband or whatever. They're not coming out to me because Wow, you're so good at scaring me. That's part of the ride, of yeah. course, but it is this thing you're talking about that there's a human being that genuinely believes in the good of people, um, telling you a, a dark story, but you're going to punch through that with the characters to uh, a kind of a different worldview that that's why they're coming up, your friends coming up. Let's talk a little bit about the that worldview that we get to through this film. So, so uh, the film "Knock at the Cabin" is based on a book called "The Cabin at the End of the World," which was sort of this like massive horror book that came out a few years ago. It's about a couple, I should say, like a, a gay couple and their and their daughter who are at a. I don't think this is stop me, but I don't think I'm going to spoil anything. Who are in a, a cabin on vacation? Four strangers come, and this is in the synopsis, so I think I can get away with it. Say uh, you have to sacrifice one of the family members to prevent the apocalypse. You have to understand that we cannot and will not choose who is to be sacrificed for you. And just as importantly, we cannot act for you. You cannot kill yourselves. We're not choosing anyone. We're not sacrificing anyone. Not now, not ever. When you read this book, um, what was it about, because I'm sure you read a lot, what was it about it that made you go like, oh, this is a story I actually have to tell? You know, that, that what you just said, I felt was one of those once in five year ideas that it was super provocative. It was full of the thrilling qualities of the genre, but it was very emotional and very powerful. And on, there's so many ways to take that premise that you just said. Are they crazy? What's, you know, the, the, the home invasion of it all. Um, then you start to start to question whether it's real, real or not. And then I can, I can ping pong you back and forth through that. And, and just in terms of our conversation that we're having between nihilism and a sense of optimism about things as a worldview, it's a fascinating line of conversation that you and I are having given that we just went to talk about the book versus the movie, um, because I could I could make a pretty cogent case that 
that's the difference between the two. Um, I'm trying to talk lightly about it because I'm not trying to lead you guys to, to one thing or the other, but the, the author chose to go one direction yeah. and I chose to go another direction. Yeah. The author chose to go one direction, which would speak to, oh my God, this is so fun to speak to <laughs> one of the paths that you were on in terms of nihilism versus idealism. And you chose to go to another path versus nihilism. Yeah. Versus, but yeah. And, 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 yeah. and again, I would say, but this isn't about dark versus light. This is, um, it is about nihilism that ultimately when you're telling a story from, from any, and you, you, you go too far, right? The things we're talking about is it's what the, you and I referencing about this kind of torture porn or something where you go too far. That is because the author um, or the storyteller genuinely feels in, in a, in a, in a dark place that they are, that they are, there's a little bit of, there's hopelessness that they're, and there's some of their, um, uh, self-analysis and, and reflections on the world has left them bereft of hope. And so there they are. That's where, and then that's where truth lies for them that I don't know how to take the next step. And, and, and so, um, they convey that to the, the viewer or the reader. Um, that is not the case with me. And so I actually feel that I can do darker things even. And, and, and because I, I don't have that 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 sum to the equation of the of of my analysis of myself and the world around me and so i feel free to go to really challenge you guys in really really you know s sincere ways that are unexpected but you you can sense that it isn't about me trying to bring you bring you to a dark place and hold you where i am in this kind of hopelessness if that makes sense it it does it does wordy. no 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 it's good but let me let me just ground it in um let me ground it in the 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 plot or the reality of the of the film and you stop we me we can't get too we can't get too specific yeah you, i'm pre-taping this so if i go too far jump out of the screen and grab me um, <laughs> okay, got you. so when the characters are making the decision about whether they are going to be willing to sacrifice one another to save the world whether or not that is actually what they're being asked for one of the questions I felt like you were asking in this film is, is the world actually worth saving? Mm -hmm. That's one of the things they're considering. But before they even consider that or alongside that, there is questions of, you know, the veracity of what these individuals are saying. Sure. And, but, but was yeah. is is was the is the world saving on your mind yourself? Definitely. Definitely. That's where we're we're all at, you know, so. I can, you know, I, I I can honestly tell you. Sometimes I think we're cockroaches, right? That actually, that's bad. That's saying bad things about cockroaches. They've never really done anything, <laughs> you know. So <laughs> we're really uh, much worse, worse, worse uh, impact on the world. But um, we could flip that if we wanted to, um, and that's the question: Is it possible to flip it? You know, our track record's pretty bad, but we could we could flip it. Um, but the, you know. The the thing I was talking about was referencing something in in the book that uh, was just something I couldn't get past, you know. Do you really think that everything that happened today, everything we've seen, do you really think it's all just a coincidence? Yes, I think it's all coincidence. Some horrible, unexplainable coincidence. Or it has to be a trick. I have to believe that. You already don't believe that. The film is also centered around um, sort of the 
Christian idea of the apocalypse, the idea, and, and it has a couple of biblical sort of overtones. One is the idea of the apocalypse. Another is one I won't mention because it'll spoil it. And the other is the idea, I guess, of Abraham and Isaac, like sacrificing mm. in order to sacrificing mm. the thing that means the most to you so that you will have, be able to, you know, prove your loyalty to God or prove your love to God. It's not the first time that your films have come up in sort of a religious um, path, you know, I mean, the sixth inch yeah. that came up as well, like, does that predicate the idea of, of life after death? How's your spiritual life? Do you have, is that, is that a part of your life? You, you know, I, I would, um, it was interesting how you did that. You talking about organized religion and then you asked me about my spiritual life. Yeah, I was, I, I, was in, I was intentional. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very fascinating because it was, um, those are, those are two different answers, I guess, with regard, I'm so not religious, yeah. you know, um, that's just not my thing at all. But uh, I, I guess I'm, I would consider myself pretty pretty spiritual, you know, like, you know, um, breathing in the things that the world offers and, and really believing in its benevolence as, as, a, as an entity. And what does that mean? Kind of like, I don't know if it's physics or whatever that, but the universe wants you to grow. It doesn't, you know, necessarily, it's not there for destruction, although... Uh, destruction is a kind of a resetting and a starting over, which is a beautiful part of a cycle of growth. So you have to be careful how you're interpreting the things that are happening to you when something bad happens to us or stumbling us or something like that, that it's actually an accelerant for growth. And, um, and ultimately that's where I believe everything is, is, is meant for us. So, um, so I, as you can see, I'm, you know, I do have a lot of thoughts about things in that realm of, that are uh, beyond what we can touch and feel, but n- n- not a not a huge fan of organized religion. Although I'm very fascinated by it. Yeah, I can tell. And so it it, it comes in, into my movies a lot. You know, like when you think, like I have a poster on the wall of The Exorcist. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ compels you. That the power of Christ compels you. And I grew up Hindu. It's not like as a child or a teenager, I watched The Exorcist and I went, wow, this really does does reinforce my religious beliefs. I'm like, this is amazing, you know, that the idea of good and evil, you know, battling over a child's soul um, feels profound, you know, the perversity of that, yeah. that uh, um, and, and some, you know, and so I was thinking of it more now, I, you know, retrospectively as an adult, thinking of it more as mythology, much like uh, a fictional mythology, you know, so, um, or mythology that, you know, that human beings wish it were true, like aliens or ghosts or what, you know, and so I've, I have fun with mythologies that I can ground. And, and I guess I've just been so inculcated or indoctrinated by Catholicism. Uh, You know, I went to Catholic school for 10 years. And uh, my family is pretty, you know, pretty active, uh, Hindus. And so, uh, you know, seeing religion as ways to find meaning, um, and feel like you're a part of something bigger, which I think is a necessity as Mm -hmm. a human being. And, and so I think if, you know, all these years, you know, this is 30 years of making movies and, and I was in, you know, all these countries in the world and all these fans are there and I'm, I was, you know, and I have to believe that the thing that they're connecting to generation after generation is this wish fulfillment that my stories say, hey, you're a part of something larger, you yeah. know? In that, in those 30 years, speaking of faith, you've, you've obviously had tremendous faith in your own self, in that you've stuck to your creative vision 
um, sort of against all odds throughout your career. Where does that come from? You know, it's a great question. Um, whenever I come across something that would jeopardize that, a person, a decision, money, the wrong kind of money, the wrong kind of opportunity, I feel that thing that is uh, sacred at risk um, and I don't do it. Um, and so, and and when I have tricked myself into doing the, one of those things for what I think is benevolent reasons and it's, and it starts to corrupt the thing that's sacred to me, which is the thing that's sacred is my relationship to the story. Can you, can, can you give me an example of the, the thing that would corrupt it? Putting myself in a circumstance where I do not have the ultimate say about my relationship between me and the storytelling and the art of cinema. So, uh, for example, would be, you know, if, uh, you know, they asked me, uh, there was a, uh, a, a big, I'm trying to think without saying specific things. <laughs> it's a big, there's a giant, giant franchises that wanted me to be, the, you know, do one of them. And they called me and said, we really want you to do one. This is like the fifth time they call me for this. And I'm like, hey, you don't want me to do this. And they go, we're calling you. We want you to do this. And I'm like, okay, let's do a little thought exercise. And I, so this is what I said to them. Let's do a little thought exercise. I see a $1 million dollar, uh, uh, Swiss movie uh, that I think is brilliant. And I'm going to put, I see the way the women are dressed in that, that little, little movie. And I say, she's that whoever did this, this, I find out this, this woman costume. I said, I'm now going to make her the costumer of this gigantic movie. How, how do you feel about that? And they said, well, you know, we'll definitely, you know, uh, <laughs> le, le, you know, we'll all watch that and we'll all talk about it. And then we will bring you some other ideas too for, uh, 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 uh. no, that's not, that's not what we're going to do. What's happening in that moment is I saw something numinous in this, this fictional woman that we're talking about and the way she costumed, I saw her relations to shape and movement and form that is natural and beyond what she should be able to do. And I'm, it's inspiring me. I just need to be around this person so I can learn from her and be inspired by her. I'm not going to get you to talk me out of it. And I said, so they were silent. And I go, that's why I can't do your franchise wow. because it's too, I, I don't want to take that kind of money to make that large a movie and put all of these instincts at risk. I would rather make a small movie with that individual and dazzle you. So that's how, like, that's a literal conversation that we had. I just heard you say something interesting. I loved your interview with Norm MacDonald, and you said mm. something like, um, I, can, I can talk about my films as in the films I made before I had kids, the mm -hmm. films I made when I had young kids, and mm -hmm. the films I made when uh, I had grown up kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that, yeah. are, are we talking about that there? No, no. I, I think, you know, there was a moment where I tried to join the system. And uh, to be frank, it was, you know, the, 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 there's you're constantly as a human being trying to be, it's this pull between finding out who you are and trying to be accepted by the, by everyone yeah. at the highest level. You know, we're, we're kind of, you know, beat into us that we need to be succeed and be accepted by everybody, you know, and we call it fame or success or being rich, whatever you want to call it. But really at the end of the day, it's being accepted, right? And yet 
that doesn't ultimately make you happy. It's a false, it's a false goal. But when I got, I think, started to feel like, God, this is so hard. Everyone's always fighting me. They're fighting me. I don't, you know, I hear things and I, they seem so true and they make me so happy. And then they, they get, they, they re, they, they face resistance coming into the world. Maybe I'm doing this wrong. Maybe there's an easier way. And everyone's saying you should be this way. You should do it this way. You should. And everyone has advice. Even the people on your side, it's easier to do it this way. So I, you know, after like decades, some you try it and you go, okay, let me join the system. You know, everybody else seems to be getting, you know, on this parade. It's fantastic. So I join it. And not only am I not good at it, I'm so unhappy. And I can see that I've now corrupted the thing that I've been. I've had the thing that everyone always wants, which I, I've, I found the thing that makes me so happy. And I'm, I'm really good at it. And mm. it doesn't matter if you see it on the day. You will one day because the, the, the relationship between me and the story is I love that. I love it, you know, and that was such a joyous moment. And most people would have seen it as the nadir moment in the career. But obviously, that's the time when you shed your ego so much that you're just standing there with the things that are most important to you. And I went, let's mortgage the house. I'm going to tell a story and it's going to be funny and scary. And I don't care that nobody has done it before. I don't care that it's never succeeded before. We're going to change the genre. And that's what's going to happen. So I made the movie The Visit. Becca, Tyler, babies, I need you to listen to me very carefully. Becca, Tyler, just listen to me. We are. Those aren't your grandparents. And it was, you know, it was like razor sharp between succeeding and not succeeding and bankruptcy and all of those things. Yeah. But the joy of the, the sacredness of the thing that was really important to me kept me making the right micro decisions and macro decisions during that time. Think of your favorite one hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. By the way, I do want to correct something that you said. Please. You're propagating a narrative that you heard. Okay. Which was, you you came out of the gates and you made a first film that was a generational film in Sixth Sense. Yeah. And then you went, already you told a narrative that is incorrect. So that was my third movie. And now, I, now to be yeah. fair to me, I said early I know, in your career. Okay, so listening back to that, I think I have an opportunity to explain myself. I didn't say The Sixth Sense was the first film he ever made. That being said, I also didn't say early in your career. What I said was, it was one of the first films you've ever made. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. What's more interesting to me than me having a bit of a racket with M. Night Shyamalan there is why it bothers him that people get his timeline wrong. Why it bothers him that people think his first film was The Sixth Sense. Like, it has to be more than just an accuracy, right? It must tell a story that he's not comfortable with. 
M. Night Shyamalan's new movie is called Knock at the Cabin. But let's, uh, let's start with our tussle. What we're really referring to here, or at least what I'm referring to here, because I'm not going to put words in your mouth, is that one of the very first things you ever do, The Sixth Sense, becomes this like generational film. I see dead people. In your dreams? When you made The Sixth Sense, was there more room for stories like it than there is now in, in theaters? Is, was there more? Because I've heard you talk about this before, that back then, like, what did Hollywood look back, like back then for stories like yours? I mean, it was geared towards original uh, auteur filmmakers. That's what they were searching for. That's what they were nurturing. They were, they were believed in it, inspired by it. They weren't. It wasn't corporations open or owning the studios at that time. Yeah. They were aspirational filmmakers, and it was meant to support the best storytellers in the world to tell unique stories to to the mass audience. That's what it was geared at. So there was, you know, it was a different profile of what they were buying and supporting and all that stuff. And that has changed, but it it's definitely hasn't gone away. Um, and and those of us that are lucky enough to still tell those kind of stories uh, uh, see there's their audiences are still there. And then all these wonderful new voices that are coming up that keep proving everyone wrong again and again and again uh, is amazing. Everything, everywhere, all at once. All of those kind of moments are going to keep happening. You can't stop original voices from reaching uh, the people. I'm not your husband. I'm another version of one from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Hold tight to help you. But by the way, I do want to correct something that you said. Please. Like you, I'm often wrong. You, well, no, it's not that you're wrong. You're propagating a narrative that you heard, okay. which was you, you came out of the gates and you made a first film that was a generational film in Sixth Sense. Yeah. And then you went on. Already you told a narrative that is incorrect. So that was my third movie. And now, I, now, to be yes. fair to me, I said early, <laughs> to be fair to me, I said early know, but, in your career. Early what, yeah, in your well, career. What, the, what, what it want, the narrative wants to be is you got lucky. That's what the mer- narrative wants to be, oh. which is, in, which is, in, which is in, incorrect narrative. The narrative is you made a you feature at 21. It was too sentimental and it never really found its audience. Tell us something about America. Yes. Have you met Michael Jackson? You got devastated. Yeah. You, you, your career, you can't find another way. It's like you don't believe in yourself. You write another movie. You ever think about God? We go to Catholic school. God's like our homework. It gets bought in a bidding war by a man named Harvey Weinstein, who mm-hmm. turns out to be one of the historical monsters of all time. And... I go through the fire with that guy and the the years of working with that guy. And again, too sentimental, too emotional, too overly spiritual, all that stuff. Through these these experiences, you're building these muscles up. Now I'm only 24, 25, and suddenly it hits me how to tell stories in a way to, to different people in different ways in comedy and this and scares. And I write Stuart Little and Sixth Sense and do another movie for another studio that was their biggest movie of that year. And I just started to feel my own agency 
uh, in a way that I wish everyone could, because essentially Harvey represented your demon, right? And as a child to be, to be not a child, you know, young man to face the demon, you know, like that and come out standing, you know, and then I put it, make this thing. We put it, they, they hate the movie. They dump it in the worst part of the year. The movie succeeds and by itself, I start writing Unbreakable the same year. I believe I make a better movie that same year. Hello. I wasn't injured in that car accident. David. I've never been injured, Elijah. What am I supposed to do? Go to where people are. That's a more nuanced conversation than you made a movie and yeah. you got lucky. Yeah. That's not that's not what happened. It was I think I think that drives a, you crazy. By fire, yeah. I think that drives you crazy not just because it's it inaccurate. Does. Yes, yes. You know? I think it's not just that it's inaccurate that it drives you crazy. I think it drives you crazy for another reason. What's that? I don't know. But like not only is it inaccurate, but I think it like tells a story that is not comfortable like that's not that's it's uh, symbolic in a way that's not good. Yeah, you know, it, it tells a false narrative that you that 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 it, it takes the agency yeah. away from my story, yeah. and thus takes the agency f- away from all the listeners. You I'm, know how much pain that you had to go through to get to that moment where you broke through. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of a lot of failure and a lot of fear you have to face, and then the narrative keeps on trying to hold you back. Like, you know, it's like in my opinion, eleven months later, I made a better movie. In, in Unbreakable. The world didn't receive it that way because no one had made a comic book movie nor a grounded, somber comic book movie, you know? So it's a fascinating relationship between media. Uh, I've always had this really complicated relationship. Now it's kind of become easier to some extent because I've been around so long that it it, it can't have help but have a little bit of information behind it. Um, sorry, I keep getting you off your topic. You're not going to be off my topic. Good, this, I have such a good time talking to you. This I'm has not, been good. Oh, I'm having a good time talking to you too. But they're 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 going to kill me if they're they're going to break into this thing if I keep talking any longer. You know what <laughs> I mean? They're going to they're going to murder me. But have, you just have a great way. It's like I feel like we uh, we could just talk about anything. I, I'm 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 just going to here to tell you I'm looking forward to your buddy cop movie whenever you decide to make that one. You know, that's right. I can't wait. I think you know. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about going full other genre like in, at this stage? I know you did. You know, well, I, I feel like other than family movies, which is a separate thing, like the Stuart Littles yeah. and you know all those family movies that I've really been interested in, um, I do feel a lot of pliability in the in the in the way I make movies. That you know, like Knock at the Cabin has a a, a pretty a pretty serious r- romantic line in it. It's a romance, and um, I feel the love story is critical and and really important to me about why I wanted to tell the story. I've been telling love stories, you know, in there and and I kind of, you know, really enjoyed the humor as we talked about. So I've been I feel able to flex muscles in those in those areas, but I don't get tired of being a mystery writer. So if that's the kind of the overall question I and 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 really mystery is the genre underneath thriller and all of that's the yeah. base genre, right? Yeah, the mystery. It is. it is. You're right. Ah, what a joy to talk to you, man. Thanks so much. Oh, man, I feel bad. I wish we could talk some more, but you're so you're so amazing. Thank you for having me on. You should come to Toronto and we can talk here next time. Next time you're in Toronto, I come into the that. studio and we'll have a chat. That would be amazing. Congrats on the film, man. Nice to meet you. What can I say? We got in a racket, but we made up. 
M. Night Shyamalan is a dream guest, by the way, and his new film is called Knock at the Cabin. Solid uh, date scary movie, if I can if I can offer that. And it's in theaters now. I didn't know this, but if you talk to people who went to art school, they'll tell you that it's not all just like thinking and brushstrokes and, I don't know, berets and cigarettes. It's a lot of uh, criticism. There are formal days set up just to analyze your artwork, days where professors or mentors or even like other artists tell you what they think of your work. Does your composition work? Is there a deeper meaning? Hannah Epstein is this really popular textile artist. She's from Nova Scotia. So check out what she did here. She and her friends created this website where she uses AI to do art criticism. It's called critbot.ai. And how it works is that any artist at any stage of their career, you can submit images of your work to this website and it'll use artificial intelligence to critique it. So in our conversation today, like the one you're about to hear, what we did was we got one of our producers on cue who is an incredibly talented visual artist to submit her own work to the AI. Uh, This is what she said before she did it. There is no human or machine on this earth that's a harsher critic of my work than I am. So, yeah, I think I can take it. Lay it on me. Can I just say I can relate? Uh, But first, before we get to that, here's uh, my conversation with the Canadian artist and, and strangely my former classmate, Hannah Epstein. How are you? Hey, I'm pretty good, Tom. How are you? I'm good. I was just—we were just reminiscing that we, I, yeah. mean, I, we, I knew you back in St. John's. It's nice. To, I'm, I'm happy you're on the show. Yeah, we're both graduates of the famous Memorial University folklore program. We've <laughs> gone on to do we're big, on, amazing things. We're on the website. I don't think I'm even on there. I'm glad you are. I didn't know that there was criticism involved in in art school. Um, like, how did art school critiques play into the kind of work you make now? If they if they did at all. Well, first of all, largely, I'd say I think there's probably not enough criticism involved in art school. I've heard anecdotal reports, especially in the culture now from people doing their undergrads, that their peers are really afraid to give their real opinions in a crit structure, afraid that they'll insult the artist or cross some sort of line. So hold on. Um, so so you, yeah. you're telling me that when you're like, – can you remember uh, – uh, like you're in school and you – you what? You you do a work and and what what do they say to you? Do you remember something someone said to you? Yeah, you know, you pour your heart and soul like into a piece of artwork, and then you put it up for your peers and professors, and perhaps visiting curators and artists to critique. And uh, I was actually remembering one of the most memorable critiques I experienced. I had made a very complex collage across a giant wall space of all of these colorful textiles that I make. And the professor present for the critique said, the world is falling apart at your feet and you just want to have fun. So there's an example of but a the, type of critique. But, but that's, not, that's not like, hey, your colors could be better. That's, that's like criticizing whether or not you should be making art. Right. No, exactly. Well, I think that when you're dealing with a critique structure, they're not so focused on, okay, well, this this part should actually be a different color. They're not nitpicking necessarily like that. They're wanting to have a more productive conversation for the artist to actually delve into what it is you're making, why you're making it, and try and operate on a more conceptual level. Usually they're seeing your work without any kind of introduction. You're a silent fly on the wall. 
and everybody is trying to verbally externalize how your work is hitting them. So, so going through something like this, why would you want to recreate it using AI? Well, precisely because of some things you sort of mentioned earlier on, you know, you're talking about individual person's perspectives. So you're saying everyone is coming from their own point of view. So they're going to say, I see it this way because of my own tastes, my own experience. So it's highly, highly subjective. And individually as humans, we are deeply flawed. And AI is an opportunity to try and put together as many different points of view as possible and pull out of it a useful critique for the artists themselves and not feel like they're up against a very hard-lined, pre-existing perspective that exists in an individual human. Okay, so by using AI, we are able to take a, a, a lot of the language of criticism, put them into some <laughs> sort of database, use artificial intelligence to take out a criticism that seems perhaps fair or, or at least accurate and not based on an individual person's history or, or traumas or an individual person's taste, like to remove that part of the whole thing. Exactly, exactly. The individual, the singular human person is your enemy in the art critique because you're only up against their singular opinion. Mm. The crit AI is an opportunity for artists to actually somehow fine tune through or like levels of like whether they want a harsh or easier critique, um, something that's actually going to be useful for them in the development of their practice. So, so we, we tried it out, hey? So uh, mm -hmm. we were curious about this. We wanted to know how it works. One of our uh, producers here on Q, Vivian Rashad, is an, an exceptional artist. Um, and so we submitted mm -hmm. one of her paintings to your AI, to CritBot. Um, here she is filling out the form on the website. So the painting I'm submitting is a still life. It's a table with a lot of clutter on it, I would say, <laughs> like uh, different fabrics. There's a plant, a candle, and then the focal point is an iPad in the foreground, which has Wong Kar Wai's film In the Mood for Love on it. And so I titled the painting In the Mood for Love. And I hope the robot likes it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm expecting it to have some harsh criticism, though. I hope the robot likes it. So that's our digital producer, Vivian Rashad, uploading a photo of her painting to CritBot. And she had to choose whether she wanted kind criticism, constructive criticism, or harsh criticism. Why give that choice? I think that if you are sort of nervous and unsure about the work, you're feeling quite sensitive about it, to subject that instantly to a very harsh criticism might throw you off a very potentially fruitful track. And so having the opportunity to just get blind support from a level one crit could actually help you delve deeper in a more encouraging way, as opposed to just like the level three harsh crit just ending your pursuit of that entirely. But isn't it also just a, 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 with, with that option, can't you just submit anything and choose kind and just feel good about yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Our, our producer, Vivian, I should say, for whatever reason, chose the harsh option. And uh, here she is reading her results. In the Mood for Love is a painting that at first glance may appear to be a traditional still life. However, upon closer examination, it becomes clear that this piece is not a mere exercise in realism, but rather a commentary on the intersection of technology and tradition. I did not intend that, but I like the way that sounds. That's not too bad. <laughs> I wish I wrote that. 
However, despite the skillful technique and thought-provoking imagery, oh, now we're getting into the real criticism. <laughs> this painting ultimately falls short in its execution. The composition feels cluttered and disjointed with no clear focal point. It is a prime example of an artist having a concept but failing to execute it in a meaningful and impactful way. You know what, overall, I'm happy with that criticism. The results are a lot more positive than I expected. So Hannah Epstein, we're talking to you about your AI art criticism bot, and that's our digital producer, Vivian Rashad, reading at its criticism of her painting. Listening back to that, what do you think? Um, I think that she was pretty fortunate to get one of those level three harsh crits that is sort of more of a 2.5 than a full on three. Level threes will really have lines that are like feeble attempt at meaning or forgettable and unimpressive. Or this is a work that's a prime example of the artist's lack of understanding of their medium. Wow. So yeah, I think that because we're in like really like early stage development, we're trying to fine tune what are the real personalities that of art of the art critic that define level one, two, and three? So, yeah, have I would you, say that's sort of two point five. Have you received um, a piece of criticism through Critbot that has either like really disheartened you to the point where you didn't really want to make art anymore, or has actually made your work better so that the next round you did was was better? Like it was actually useful. Well, I submitted a piece recently. It was a really large piece I made, something I was really proud of. It was called Unbridled. This woman, she's naked. It's a big textile. She's riding the back of a dragon and holding a big flaming torch, and she's headed towards the mouth of a monster. And the AI, to my surprise, was actually criticizing the use of the dragon and calling it cultural appropriation. And I was like, oh, my God, have we accidentally created like a very woke art crit bot, which is something I would not want to veer towards. But I think it's something that like in the inherent um, language learning of this model that we're working with, it's absorbed woke language in itself and is then inherently like reflecting it back to me. If you could personify on that, if you could like personify Critbot, who would this person be at a gallery opening party? You know, I used to think about this like very typical, like white, middle-aged, very serious, like thick-rimmed glasses wearing character. But now I think about the AI more as a very concentrated mirror. The AI is reflecting us back to ourselves. In a way, it's sort of, you know, this idea of like the Schrodinger's cat box, where the cat is simultaneously both dead and alive until you observe it. Mm -hmm. I think this art critic is simultaneously level one, two, and three. The art critic is simultaneously all art criticism at the same time. And only when you ask it to be a certain type of way and reflect a certain type of image back to you or a certain type of perspective back to you, that's when you like pull it out and it like takes on that mask. But otherwise it's this like very complex, deeply concentrated mirror that contains as much human knowledge as we've been able to like jam into its systems. Do you hope that this is more of a commentary on art criticism or maybe an actual useful tool for artists? I really hope it can be both. I don't think it has to be one or the other. I was having a conversation with my co-founders this morning, um, 
Pat Blomke and Jonathan Carroll, shout out, about whether or not we had an entertainment property or a real tool that could be developed for use in universities or museums. And I don't, I'm not sure that they have to be exclusive, mutually exclusive. One of the criticisms of, say, ChatGPT, which is this AI program that generates, among many other things, like essays based on a prompt. For instance, you could say, write me an essay about Jimi Hendrix in the style of James Joyce. And it'll come out looking fine, but it'll also sound like someone who hasn't read the book trying to do a book report. My guess being because there's not this emotional attachment to the work. Does it feel like that when you read these criticisms back? I mean, I think that the limitation of the critic is based largely on the developers being able to give the critic as many voices as possible. So we could talk about the possibility of eventually having a critbot.ai that's criticizing from the lens of like a 1960s art critic or someone more contemporary. Although like maybe there's like a limitation for it to have real deep emotional connection with the work. Obviously, it doesn't actually have any feelings, but its ability to approximate and mimic that effect is totally believable. Like when I read it, I when I read the crits as they come out, I'm constantly amazed at the insightful analysis that this AI is able to deliver to, to a composition of images and that it understands the artwork as a distinct thing and that there's an artist intent behind it to try and form and work through symbolic meaning. Hannah, this is so fascinating. You know, back when we were both studying Folklore Memorial, the, the textile art was not as much of a surprise. The AI art criticism bot is, is definitely a surprise, but it's so impressive. And, and thanks for coming on and talking to us about today. Thank you so much for having me. Hannah Epstein is a textile and digital media artist from Nova Scotia. You can see her project CritBot at the website critbot.ai. Hannah's Instagram account is worth checking out, critbot.ai. And I want to shout out our producer here on Q, Vivian Rashad. She's going to share the painting she submitted to the AI art criticism bot um, with a full version of her uh, harsh critique. She's at Vivian Rashad on Instagram. That is V I V I A N R A S H O T T E. That is it for the show today. Uh, as always, drop us a line, q at cbc.ca. If you're enjoying this podcast, uh, please send it to your friends or follow or subscribe if you're not doing so already. If you want to drop me a line, I'm on Instagram at Tom Joe Power. The show is there at CBCQ. Uh, people have been sending me tweets. I'm not, I'm really not on Twitter. So not the best way to reach me. But uh, drop me a line on Instagram. I'm always checking that kind of thing sort of obsessively. Tomorrow on the show, it is the 25th anniversary of the film Titanic. I don't mean to make you feel old. Uh, James Cameron will be here, the Canadian director of that film, of Avatar, of Terminator. He'll be here to talk a little bit about how that film was never supposed to work out in the first place. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.